to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. Everyone loves a cool pair of sunglasses, but running a successful sunglasses company is even cooler. Today's guest started an e-commerce sunglasses company while still working a full-time job. He is now selling over a million pair of sunglasses a year. Chris Ratterman, founder and CEO of Shady Rays, has created a wildly successful company that is continuing to grow. So today we have with us a extremely successful entrepreneur who is in the sunglasses business, which is of particular interest to me only because I have always loved sunglasses myself. They've always been my favorite accessory, so I'm always in search of kind of the coolest sunglasses. So Chris Ratterman is the founder and CEO of Shady Rays. Chris, thanks so much for joining me and welcome to Street Smart Success. I appreciate it, Roger. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You are the CEO of this cool company. You're in Louisville. So before we get into the cool stuff about the business, I, I want to get into your background a little bit. Sure. And I was wondering, where did you grow up? Where did you go to college? And how did you ultimately get into the sunglass business, which I love so much? Yes, absolutely. Happy to start at the beginning. Uh, so as you said, I am from Louisville, Kentucky, born and raised. I was the kid that was always interested in entrepreneurial ventures and business ventures, even as a small child prior to the Shark Tank era, right? And uh, But Entrepreneur Magazine was a thing still at the time. Uh, and so I was very interested in business from a young age. Um, fast forward a bit, of course, did the initial lawn mowing business and different side ventures and the baseball card thing. Uh, but eventually, I always knew that I wanted to further my education in business. And so that's what I did. I went to Cincinnati uh, for four years and went to school at Xavier University. Uh, during my time there, I majored in marketing and finance and had different internships, both in finance and marketing. Uh, and I did that specifically because I wanted to have both ends of the spectrum of business. Really, my heart's in marketing. I'm really a marketing guy. Uh, but I wanted to make sure that I had the fundamentals and the financial side understood as well. And so I did that. Also, at the time, it was let's have, you know, two different routes of a career because when you're in college, you don't exactly know where life is going to take you. And so, and so that was my, my college experience. When I graduated college, that was in 2008. So I graduated into the Great Recession. Jobs were hard to find. Many of my friends were waiting tables or continuing their degrees. And I was very fortunate, very, very fortunate at the time to get a position at Heaven Hill Brands, uh, which is in the spirit industry, and become an assistant brand manager and work in corporate marketing at a really crucial time, a time when social media marketing was really just getting off the ground. That was the very, very early stages of Instagram even being a thing, not much less Instagram influencers. Facebook at that time did not even allow advertising. It was the years of organic traffic and organic Facebook likes. Shopify and e-commerce had not been developed. And so I, I really came into a corporate environment and was able to really get my feet wet, learn uh, amongst managing a variety of brands under very smart senior marketing managers, uh, and really come up in the world of social media marketing. I always knew in the back of my mind that I wanted to start my own business. And that was something that just, I always had that bug. I had the entrepreneurial bug, but, um, but I spent a good amount of years really learning and leaning in and, and working on the corporate side. Uh, during that time, I got my MBA part time at Indiana University Southeast. And so I did that at night on, at night. And throughout that time was really kind of forming what would eventually become Shady Rays uh, and, and ended up launching that. And I could kind of get into that beginning process. But as far as my personal history, that is it in a nutshell, I think. Just a, a clarification, as a kid, baseball cards, what were you like buying and selling them? Well, I call it baseball cards. Uh, really, what I was more into was basketball cards. I was a very big NBA fan. Uh, but nonetheless, there, were, there was a sports card store locally. You know, you could buy the pack of tops cards. You could buy 
and you could you could see which cards you would get trade with friends and then you could eventually go to the store and you could sell those back for if you're lucky 15 bucks 25 bucks at the time that was a ton of money uh so that was the big hit and you know they had the price books i would buy the price books that would show the worth of certain rookie cards and different things but you know that was I didn't even know it at the time, but that was just, you know, currency. It was just value, trade value that obviously gets applied in the business world now. But that was always something of interest for me. Not necessarily the cards for the card's sake, but the value of it and how I could kind of work the system and figure out how to make money in that way and, and on a topic that was that was interesting to me. Basketball cards right now are absolutely going through the roof. And so I would imagine if you if you'd kept some of those cards and maybe it did, they'd be worth a fortune right now. <laughs> you know, I had heard that. I had I don't know much more than that. Uh, I'm probably sitting on a couple binders of some interesting cards, and maybe I'll have to go dig that out. Oh, so you do, so you do have some? Yeah, I mean, as a bonding uh, exercise with my older son, we bought some cards uh, right before he went to Indiana University in Bloomington, beginning middle of August, and we bought. And I don't even remember because I'm not a huge basketball fan. I did it to bond with my son. Actually, I love basketball, but I only pay attention. <laughs> I only pay attention postseason and if the Warriors are in. So, uh, but anyway, that's that is a, a huge digression. So it sounds like um, it sounds like uh, again your timing was was right along the lines of the emergence of social media as it pertained to brand building, um, which is really interesting, and I'm sure you've leveraged that, which you, you somewhat in, inferred. But before I ask you about that, how much value or what was the value of your MBA? on your career and in what you're able to learn and, and apply to or not, you know, however you would answer that. Yeah. I think that it's something first and foremost that I'm glad I did and that I'm proud of doing. I think the most of the value in it, quite frankly, was in going through business cases and business topics with other professionals that are also in the, that, are in the workforce as I was and have had some experience under their belt and can really talk from a greater perspective and, and collaborate from a greater perspective as opposed to undergrad where no one had really been in the workforce, maybe internships, but generally speaking, you hadn't really been in the workforce. You're just sort of working from what you're being told. And I think that was the best benefit. I don't think that the content was necessarily that much harder or that much different. I think it was uh, a little bit more tailored to certain things. But uh, but honestly, what the most helpful things I learned in that are the soft skills. The soft skills are very underrated. You know, you can talk, you can get very in the weeds on corporate finance and economics, but it's hard to find use cases for that, especially in the specific use cases you might look learn in a classroom. So, for example, I think that negotiation, the negotiation class that I took, was extremely valuable, and it provided a, a platform to not only learn techniques but to practice those techniques in a in a mock scenarios. I think that would be my number one number one class. There's some corporate communications classes too that just help navigate the corporate environment and um, communication at different levels. And I think that was really where I I took the most away. Uh, but I would say that the real life working experience, the corporate experience, just the doing and learning through doing, nothing beats that in my opinion. And I think it, it takes those reps and it takes that focus. So I think it's it's supplementary, but it, it wasn't, I, I don't consider it core to where I ended up. Got it. That, that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've heard people say that, frankly, about, you know, Harvard Business School, that not dismissing the content curriculum by any stretch of the imagination, but saying that the greater value is who you meet. Right. And, you know, kind of like who your peer group ultimately ends up being. So going back to that, when you were the assistant brand manager at Heaven Hill, um, what exactly did you do vis-a-vis um, -vis, uh, social media in terms of, of applying to building that brand or brands, plural? So this is very interesting. And I did this on various spirit brands, one being Hypnotic Liqueur, another being Evan Williams Bourbon. These brands at the time had obviously different advertising programs that did a year or every year. And a lot of the media at the time was being done through radio, through print advertising, through event marketing, through a lot of channels that still exist and still work. But social media and digital in general 
was not a part of the mix because it wasn't that developed. I mean, of course, there were banner ads on, on digital. But when social media came onto the scene, and by social media in that day, you're really talking about Facebook. All of a sudden, you can have two-way conversations with the customer. All of a sudden, you have real-time responses, likes and comments from a customer. That was brand new. There were not best practices. Agencies didn't even know. Agencies were pitching us and they didn't know what really truly worked well and what didn't. Like I was listening to pitches of where they were trying to figure out like what type of content should we even put on our Facebook pages to our fans? Things that's pretty straight, things that are pretty straightforward right now. And so I was able to be part of the group, not not lead at that point. I mean, I was junior at that point, but be part of the group that would create kind of more dynamic, daily, ongoing two-way conversation with the customer. You know, it changed creative. It changed creative from needing five executions to create a set of print ads to needing daily imagery and lots of different directions and executions of one creative campaign. And so that was just a big shift in in marketing, it was really all I ever knew and came in and learned. But being young, being on Facebook a lot myself, really having interest to it, really leaning into it, we were able to do some really interesting things. And so from that standpoint, I have been part of social media marketing since the quote unquote, the beginning, um, because I then transitioned to to Shady Rays. It's, it's, it's of course evolved over the years. And so effectively, it's, it's just that dialogue with consumers that educates you in terms of who they are, uh, not, not just quantitatively, but qualitatively. You really get to know who they are. And so then you're able to modify messaging to better speak to them. Yes, 100%. And do it in real time and do it in a way that is agile and nimble and and pivots because you're you're creating kind of this personality for the brand you have to personify your good or service right i mean to me that's kind of the the net definition of branding and brand development and so it really forces a, a brand to do that and not kind of just hide behind you know one aesthetic and one headline and so it really brought it to life now it brings its own challenges its own uh, its own separate considerations but if you're into it it's exciting what challenges you have customers that you, you post an image, you post, here's how we use our product and, and customer might post right back and say, I tried that and I hated it. And my, and I've shared it with my friends and they didn't like it. So as a brand, what do you say? What do you say to somebody then that then that everybody else is going to see on a public forum, uh, your answer? So you got to know what you, how you're going to respond. You can't just shoot from the hip. You, you gotta, you have to keep communication clear across many different types of answers you might put out there. I guess the the alternative being that people hate aspects of the way you guys present in in public, the way that the brand messaging is, but you just don't know it because they're not you're not communicating. With exactly. hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Ignorance is bliss in some point in some cases too. Right. Yeah, exactly. Sunglasses are the coolest, right? I mean it's what what an obvious <laughs> way to make a statement. Why did you decide sunglasses? So it's a combination of a couple of things that kind of converge on what I like, what my personal interests are, and kind of where business has let had led me to what the opportunity was. Number one, I have just always loved sunglasses as a product. I agree. Preaching to the choir, I've always thought it was a cool product. It was a cool accessory. It's an easy way to just update your look, but it's functional. You go out and you do cool outdoor activities with them, whether you're hiking or you're wakeboarding or you're running. It's always great to have a good pair of shades, functionality and style. Uh, and it was just something I was very into. As a kid, I couldn't afford a pair of Oakley's. Oakley was the brand that I loved as a kid. I thought it was was very cool at the time. You know, I was a 90s kid and, and Michael Jordan was wearing them and a lot of athletes were wearing them. And I was I was I was very into that brand. Um, but I just flat out couldn't afford it. I just flat not even close. Like not even close because they were two hundred dollars plus. And that's what kind of first seeded in my mind that sunglasses were very expensive that then translated into they're overpriced and we don't have anything against any other brand there's i have no interest in talking negatively about another brand but i did want to solve and saw an opportunity and could we do this could we create high quality polarized sunglasses for a fraction of the price of these big name players and you know when i was thinking about striking out on my own and starting a brand, I immediately was drawn to sunglasses because of that interest and because of that insight that I lived of really wanting a great pair of cool sunglasses, especially sports sunglasses, not being able to afford them. Um, in addition, I knew myself and then verified with friends and family that a big 
problem with sunglasses is losing or breaking them. It's just a big problem. Like so many people can relate to losing or breaking sunglasses. And when they're $150, it hurts even more, right? My rule of thumb is that the more you pay for them, the faster you're going to lose them. <laughs> right. And you know, you what happens is, and again, I, I have no interest in being negative to another brand, but what happened, my experience was when I did have enough money to to buy the expensive brand, you you buy what is essentially a piece of plastic that you put on your face and then you go out and you get dirty and you're playing sand volleyball and you're going out on the beach and you're going in the waves and you're you're taking you're putting the putting the beating on them, right? And you might lose them in the water, uh, or at minimum you might scratch them. And so you have this very expensive accessory that is then treated in that way. It's different than a watch, a nice watch you might wear at a at a, at a dinner or a wedding, but you're not going to really take it out and, and live it extreme. So so that was kind of the, that has always been the core inside of the brand high quality at a fraction of the price and back them up as much as humanly possible, which is replace them if they're lost or broken. So, so that is what Shady Rage is all about. So you are clearly a really strong brand guy. Like that comes through loud and clear. I can talk at a high level about brand, but you know, that's about it. And you know, I could shed some insight because advertising has been my business for a long time. So Mercedes, if Mercedes cost 20 grand, nobody would want to buy them, right? It's like the more people, the more they charge, the more people want to buy them. All I saw on your site was, was sunglasses for $48. So in my mind, and I saw a couple pairs I showed my wife, I'm like, I would buy those if I hadn't just bought a pair a couple months ago kind of thing. But just based on this conversation we're having, it's, this is an impromptu question I have is, does that not somehow diminished perceived value. I don't know how to frame that any other way, and I don't mean to be a devil's advocate. Short, short answer is price absolutely frames the perception of quality, especially on e-commerce. When you don't actually have the product in hand, you're seeing it for the first time. You're judging by the photo, and you're judging by the price. And you look at the price, and that's your gauge for quality. So I agree with you 100%. I think that, that it's important from a brand perspective, since you're talking about branding, that and what's important to us is that we do have a premium outdoor lifestyle brand and we do and that is through imagery and it's through influencers and it's through those type of type of things but more importantly it's through the features and the quality that we put into the actual product so we have $48 styles we also have some higher price styles up to about 72 nowhere near most of the competitors especially the big competitors Um, But I think what we know and what we've learned is that price equals quality to an extent, um, but people's experience is also going to have an effect on that. So there are a lot of people out there that think that $250 is too much for sunglasses. $350 is too much for sunglasses. And so when they look at ours, they got the initial reaction of this $48. It might be, we, we try to make it not this way. It might be that they're cheap. So it's on us to make sure that people know that they are high quality through showing the, the actual customer reviews that are very strong through show, talking about the materials, uh, and, and through, you know, the premium aesthetic of the website. And so I think it's a little bit of a balance, but I think at the core though, I totally agree with what you're saying. I'm not making a point. I'm just asking the question because we're having a nice conversation. You know, what is different today and completely relates to, you know, what we were, what we've been talking about, which is social media, which is, you know, let's call it a 10 year, 10 year window that we've been talking about for all intents and purposes. That's what's different today than, you know, 2008 or, you know, 1998. Like you said, you've got influencers and you've got channels to educate consumers about the quality of the product and people's experience with the product to shape that brand perception that, you know, again, didn't exist 20 years ago. And so I can see how I can see how that that would would transcend price. And as you say, ultimately make value more of part of the perception so, I mean, very, very interesting. I mean, at that price, what, what are your margins on the product? Uh, so quite frankly, we don't share initial finance, internal financials you know, uh, as we're private, but I will tell you this, our margins are not massive. They are, they are not. Um, and our margins include a variety of things, such as the cost to acquire customer through media, um, also the eventual cost of what is ends up being a lost or broken replacement for a lot of people that take advantage of it. Uh, and so we make enough that we can 
continue to grow and grow fast and, and all of that. But we try to keep it as lean as possible because we want to get Shady Rays out to as many people as we can. And, and so we, we run lean, we run small, we're independent. We're trying to push down overhead costs and fixed costs so that we can uh, go out and, and promote to as many people as possible. And, you know, over time, our cost of goods as a percent of revenue actually is on the increase. There are certain categories we want to decrease. We want to decrease the, you know, freight to, to get product from here to there. Uh, that's always, that's a, that's a commodity that we want to decrease. We want to increase cost of goods because we want to increase quality over time. And that's brand building in nature. I see. Here's something I was very interesting that you do, which is um, admirable as an understatement, and that is um, that you're supporting Feeding America. And what I read is it says that you're providing 10 meals per order, which made me further say, gosh, even if the margins are super high, which frankly you're saying they're not, and I believe you 100%, how, how on earth can you afford to provide 10 meals I mean, even if you were at 50% margin, and I respect you don't disclose that, but hypothetically, if you were at you know, $24 top line margin before you back costs up, how on earth do you provide 10 meals? Right. I can, I can get into that. Yeah. The partnership with Fight Feeding America is one that we have been doing since the very beginning and we're very proud of and, and I think adds a lot of purpose to our work and, uh, and is, is the third tenet of the brand quality and the warranty and then, and then the, the social mission, which includes, you know, primarily feeding America. Um, you know, if you look at feeding America's website, you know, our cost to donate 10 meals varies. It varies by their current offering at the time and, uh, and different partners we can align with and different food banks we're promoting to. And, the different causes that they're aligned with. So it does vary. Generally speaking, if you look at feedingamerica.com, a lot of the time it's a dollar per 10 meals. And the reason why is because they are not buying the food. What Feeding America does is they are getting donations of food from large companies such as Walmart and other food companies. And they are their core job is to distribute those meals to their network of food banks around the country. They serve every zip code in the US through different partner food banks and pantries. Uh, and so what our donations are doing is facilitating those meals. And so that is how we're able to do it. Because if we were paying, you know, if we were paying five dollars for every meal, obviously we couldn't offer that that large of a benefit. But I think what's good is because because their work, you know, provide because we're working on facilitating those meals that has a multiplier effect. And so we're able to, with each customer, give a really strong benefit and also give them a high quality for the price. And so we're looking at it as we want to give people the, the best overall value in sunglasses. I'm getting a little bit off track, but I mean, that's kind of the net of, of Feeding America. And we're over, I think, 13 million meals to date so far. Uh, and that is uh, d- definitely a core tenet of the brand. Well, fantastic. I mean, who can argue with that? I mean, you're actually feeding people, and, and my goodness, that has become more and more important uh, given recent circumstances for obvious reasons. Um, so you can't do enough of that, and it would be great if more companies would would do the same. Um, how much? You know, to talk about uh, you used a word, but I forget what it was about. You know, going off on tangents. I'm the I'm the master of going off on. <laughs> In can you feel comfortable? Just talking about like what it took to start the business from a from a capital perspective. How much money did it take to get this thing off the ground? Uh, so, I this when I started the company, I had my other full time job, and uh, and that allowed me to pay the bills while I built this company, which took many years to figure it out and find a manufacturer and build a logo and and create the website and and really find how to acquire customers. I initially started started the company with less than twenty thousand dollars of my own money um, that I put in, and that almost went to zero at one point. <laughs> it was a high risk of going to zero at one point. And you know, my focus was to fund the very necessary things only to try to find a model for success. You know, if you look at the Lean Startup book and the MVP minimum viable product model, we could talk even more about that. But uh, at the end of the day, I was looking to create a brand and put an offering out there with as little budget as possible and a little amount of, as little amount of inventory as possible and then find the way that I was 
could market and acquire customers through many different sales and marketing channels. And, and that is a tough grind. And it literally took me, I don't think I paid myself from the company in four years, something like that. Uh, because everything was going back in and, and, and most things weren't working. So, <laughs> so I couldn't anyways. And, uh, and it was all bootstrap. We don't have venture capital. We don't have, um, you know, private equity. We are 100% independent. Um, and I'm the large majority owner. And, uh, and, and that's how the company, company started. You said you're the majority owner. Did you, at some point, did you accept other money from friends, family or? We had a later on, um, a couple years down the road, we had a very small, call it friends and family round, but it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a small round, um, of money that quite frankly, we never ended up really using. We took, but didn't really use. Um, and then another core aspect of it is that my parents, um, and especially my dad was shipping initial orders out of his living room. So where, what first started in a side bedroom for me turned into uh, my my parents' living room. My dad was retired at the time and had a card table and a label printer and a laptop. And uh, he packed up the orders and he put them in garbage bags and he drove them up to the post office every day. And that was very early days, still scrappy and still trying to figure out. We still hopefully hopefully we're still scrappy, <laughs> but um, but really trying to to make it work and figure out how to fulfill. You know, these could be five, could be twenty orders in a day. And that was the bridge to ended up getting a 3PL and then building our own facility. But, um, but long story short, uh, my, my parents have a, have a stake in it also for the help they did on in the onset. Well, gosh, they deserve it. Well, that is absolutely wild. So when did you officially then quit your job? Early 2017. I see. And so, you know, at that point, the company was already up to a pretty good velocity and pretty steady sales revenue and growing quickly. Um, but that obviously allowed me to work overtime and, and most, most importantly, mentally commit only to Shady Rays. Um, and since then, we've been adding team members and building the brand. Uh, we did use a third-party shipper. We ended up maxing out their capacity. Uh, and that led us to you know, build our own headquarters and operations. Uh, you know, and since then have, have just continued to expand. When did you know that it was time to quit your job? Was it that when Shady Rays provided you as much or more income as your, as your job did? Or how, how did you know now's the time to make the move? I didn't even take any money until I, I don't think I took any money until I quit my job. I mean, I, I wasn't even focused on that. Uh, I was focused on just building the brand, I think. But to answer your question specifically, I think it was once we were, you know, when you're still figuring it out and the brand is is young uh, and not developed, you have a lot of start and stops and spikes, and you might have a promo that hits and you have a lull. Um, and so it's it's not very encouraging when you have days of less than ten sales, right? And it doesn't feel very very safe and consistent. I think when we got to a point where we were doing not just sales during July and core sunglass season, you know, May through all through July, but uh, but we were actually driving sunglass sales in, in a lot of the country in January and February, and, and it was really steady. Of course, we're semi seasonal; we're not completely seasonal. Then that gave me the confidence to to go for it. It's really exciting stuff. I mean, it, this is an American success story, which is scintillating. It's why I love doing this. Where are most of your customers? Are they where the sun shines the most or where, where people are engaging in outdoor uh, activities the most? We are is really very evenly spread throughout the country. We're mostly U.S. We're starting to expand internationally in a big way now in certain countries, but um, very evenly spread. Northeast, Midwest, Southeast, West, Midwest. I mean, it, it's it's pretty even. Uh, we do not over, some brands over index on the coasts, whether it's uh, whether it's the East Coast and Upper East Coast, New York City, or whether it's uh, West Coast. We do not because we're really a product for. Anything that people like to do outdoors, of which most vast majority of people love to do something outdoors, whether they like to go on a nature walk or run or cycle or camp or hike or play volleyball or whatever it might be, go to the lake, go to the beach. And so we have this wide range of, of things that people do. You know, there's certain markets that, that our brand is just really made for and built for. We do great in Denver, Colorado, um, but we also do great in a lot of Midwest cities. And so, you know, we have products that is a little bit more 
fashion forward, vintage classic. And then we have products that's very, that are, that are very sport focused and made for the outdoorsmen, made for fishing, made for golfers. And so like all these different activities I'm talking about, many, many people can relate to one or a few of them and, and all of them can benefit and, and many people use sunglasses for them. So that's why, you know, we are a sunglass brand that, you know, we make product for the extreme scenario that is priced at a point where people can use it for other uses too. And and that's great. You've kind of got it segmented by interest. You know, those aren't probably not the exact words, but you know what I mean. So notwithstanding that, if you were to take a cross-section of all the different brands and styles and purposes, what is your average demographic, male to female in age? So we are getting closer to 50 50 male female but we're heavier male when we began we had a more developed uh male collection and so we're a little bit heavier male um you know really 25 plus there's some sweet spots in there and there are different categories and different areas where we promote within that but i think we we apply well to and and are very popular among men and women 25 plus and younger too but we're not as much of a college product. We're not as much as a, a, of a high school product. And by college product, I mean a product that kind of over-indexes and is very popular amongst students. I think we we start to see a lot of people that you know get into their mid twenties and thirties and forties and older uh, that really want something that that looks good, but is functional, and they care about price and they want to be smart with their purchases and. Uh, and they had the discretionary income to buy, you know, buy, buy sunglasses. And, and so, you know, we, we have a pretty wide audience. I see. Yeah, I was kind of, I thought it was, it wasn't intended to be funny, but it made me laugh about, you know, how a lot of the stuff when you were, when you were still had your job and you were trying to, you know, figure out the customer acquisition piece, you said a lot of the stuff didn't work. And so I, I thought that was funny just because, I mean, many of the things I tried over the years didn't work. Mark Cuban on Shark Tank says you only have to be right once, which I just love. <laughs> right. Uh, but what didn't work and what does work? You know, I'll give you a, a fun story of something that did not work. Uh, in the early days, again, goal was to test different sales channels and figure out the place that, that Shady Rays fit best. And so one thing that we tested just for a weekend, but to get a taste for it, we tested mall kiosks. So we literally rented a mall kiosk for three-day period so that we could track what was our cost, including labor cost, how many sales did we drive? Because again, if that works, that's scalable, right? Um, and this is obviously, you know, this is years ago and and this is when a lot of brands were were heavier in retail than, than they were in e-commerce, uh, which is still the case to a lot of degree. And we found that people were not that interested in coming up and looking at our product in a kiosk. We were at a kiosk that had a kiosk of very low price sunglasses, non-branded sunglasses close by. And I think it put us in that space where we were considered similar to them or just a competed, com competition to them. And no one knew Shady Rays at the time. Um, what ended up actually driving some sales is the person that we had running it was kind of interrupting people as they walked by and, and holding Shady Rays out and saying, Hey, have you ever heard of Shady Rays? And of course, everybody had not. And so when they said no, then this person would act surprised, like they couldn't believe it. And so help to draw them in and talk about the brand a little bit. Um, it didn't lose money. But what we found out is very labor intensive. It was a lot of work to fight to break even. And so, you know, but that's the kind of out of the box thing. And then people might think that's not out of the box. But to me, that was a bit of an out of the box thing to try uh, just to see what would happen in that environment. Well, it makes sense. I mean, malls, you know, on a weekend, I don't know if you, I would imagine you probably tried it on a weekend, could generate a tremendous amount of traffic, not these days, but, you know, back in the day and uh, the right demographic. And it's probably just all about where you are in the mall and et cetera, et cetera. So then what ultimately, and clearly at the process of refining, what ultimately worked and what is working? Uh, there's a variety of things that are working now that we've kind of built a, a brand and have more national awareness than we had before. Um, but I think what initially kind of set the pace was social media advertising, Twitter for one, and Facebook second. So the majority of e-commerce brands, D2C brands that have grown in the this era 
many actually started around 2012 um, and kind of caught the benefit of figuring out Facebook. You know, in the back in the day, the Facebook algorithm, learning how to use Facebook at the time was called Power Editor and now Ads Manager, was a competitive advantage. So I I went in there myself and learned it and spent hours and hours and hours because I knew that it was very hard. Like, but I knew the upside of figuring it out. Uh, and so for years, I would not tell anyone how we did our bidding, how we set up the assets, how we set up the creative, um, because it was a competitive advantage and, and you could work the system. Uh, and people did, and people worked the system in kind of fly by night company ways. We weren't a fly by night company, not intending to be, but like, but that was, but that was what eventually could create a scenario where you could put in one dollar and get two back or three back or four back, whatever it might be, create some cash flow so you can continue to grow and build a brand. Uh, and so, you know, we went a lot of time without finding success on Facebook, but we kept grinding at it. I kept grinding at it because because I knew there was a benefit there, and I was seeing it succeeding for other brands, so I knew it was possible. Um, but Twitter and Facebook, to get specific, were were two of the areas that we were able to start to get the needle turning a bit. And you and you said Twitter number one and Facebook number two. Yeah, so Twitter is not historically a channel where D2C brands have had success. <laughs> that is not what you'll hear from a lot of founders. Uh, but I leaned into that pretty heavily many years ago. And the reason why I did that, quite frankly, to get something, to get a test up is because it was just easier to work within. It was, it was, it was a simpler dashboard. And we found some success there. Enough success, not wild, wild profitability, but enough success that we could generate some cash and continue to grow from it. Um, and so that was... That was an earlier success for us than Facebook, which I think is rare. It, back when you were at that time, what did it cost to acquire a customer? <laughs> so early days on Twitter, it was sometimes it's volatile. It changes. But on some days, it could be 12 or $14 to acquire a customer. But keep in mind too, our pricing at that point, our product was different. Our price point was different. We were charging less than $30 somewhere between 20 and $30 for a pair. Um, so when we had a day where we could acquire a customer for $12, that was a big win. Very, very interesting. And so I guess it's just this function of continuously driving that acquisition cost down, but has that not gotten harder? Is it pertains specifically to Facebook? Their costs have increased? They've certainly, certainly increased. I mean, you know, the way it's been going, that, you know, Facebook at one point, call it 2000 and 15 to 17 somewhere in that in that space it was creating brands that were scaling to to insane levels because the customer acquisition cost was so good it was a, it was a culmination of their ad technology really getting to a point where it was extremely effective and a low amount of competition of people that have figured it out and we weren't on that initial wave to be frank like there were brands that that scaled way faster than us uh, that were more developed and went all in quicker during that initial phase. But since that point, every year it, the door closes a little bit more, a little bit more, and uh, and the COVID environment honestly has swung it open just a bit because of the trend free commerce and consumer buying habits going online. However, um, that has certainly been the case in D 2 That's been the story in D 2 C is that those costs have gone up, and so you know we're we are not at one point we were very reliant on Facebook. Business was kind of dependent on Facebook and the Facebook algorithm. It's not like that for us now. It's a piece of the mix. It's an important piece of the mix, but there's many other tenants. And uh, and so we're acquiring customers in, in many different ways. That's, uh, have you guys, uh, I'm sure you guys have, or maybe you are doing TikTok. We have tested TikTok. Uh, we have not done a lot on TikTok, but we're continuing to look at it. It's obviously extremely relevant right now. Um, and they have an ad dashboard like the others that um, that we have used for sure. And would the economics make sense, or would you have any inclination to go to retail distribution, open stores, or not really? In the future, I think a strategic retail strategy makes sense. Um, you know, we're focused on driving our D 2 C business. We did used to sell to independents. I mean, many months during the summer when when things are really cranking. I mean, we might get. 50 retail request, like retailers requesting to carry our product, you know, every week and we get a large amount of it. Wow. Um, but we ended up pulling it out. And because what's most important to me and to us 
is that we control our message and we're able to tell our story. We don't want to just be a product on a shelf with a logo. I don't think we win that way. I think we are a package of value. I think we're a story of independence. I think we're the warranty, number one, very heavily. I think we're the social mission and doing good. And so, um, you know, if we can get, if we can do that in the future in a way where we can tell that story, then great. Uh, but if we can't, you know, the glories of D2C is that you can control your own destiny and you're not, you're not reliant on, on a third party and a middleman and, um, and that has a certain level of complexity. And so we really kind of built the brand to be, to be D2C first. And that's where our focus is. Are there any other brands that you look at and just have an untold amount of respect for and go, wow, those guys have really done it right. They're doing it right. Yes. Yes. That's a great question. Uh, I think. When we are looking at brands that we compete against, we're thinking about the big sunglasses brands and we can get into that if you want. But when we're thinking about brands that we're kind of modeling our business after and looking at that had paved the way and that look more like us on the day-to-day operation level, it's other direct-to-consumer e-commerce brands, not necessarily sunglasses. One that comes to mind that we talk about a lot is Bomba's Socks. So Bomba Socks is well, well over $100 million in revenue. I'm not sure exactly what the revenue number is. They're originally a Shark Tank brand, but they are a socially driven company, a one-for-one model. But what they've done, more importantly than that, or as important to support that mission, that port mission is extremely important, important to support that mission, I think they have created a brand that has extremely high quality. So they're bringing a high quality product in a very clean e-commerce direct consumer experience and centering it around the social mission, which is core to their differentiation and, and as a brand proposition for them. So, so that's one that we follow. Um, you know, movement watches and VMT watches is, is a brand that has come up, was one of the first brands to really pop and one of the first brands to get to a hundred million. I think they were the number one Shopify brand at a few years down the road. And so, you know, they have a great brand aesthetic and. And it is based in the West Coast. So we watch them. There, there's probably a list of others, but those are two that come to mind. Was it Damon John that? Um... It was. Okay. It was. It was. <laughs> I, I love Damon. You know, in the last month, I think in particular, the national news just, it gets me so depressed that I've been just, <laughs> when I, and the only time I watch TV is when I eat and I eat and like takes me 10 minutes. And so I don't watch a lot of TV, but I've been, and just watching Shark Tank because it's, you know, it doesn't bum me out and it's always <laughs> kind of interesting. But the point I was trying to make is that my wife, just last night, she's going, Damon's just the nicest one. I'm like, you know, yeah, but Robert's a nice guy too. And she's like, no, she, Damon's always really nice and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, um, how many pair of glasses do you sell in a good month? Oh, man. Um it varies widely. It varies widely. To be honest with you, I'd have to look at the numbers. I think, you know, we're, we're selling well over a million a year, you know, something like that and varies widely by month. But, you know, we're getting, we're getting to move a lot of product. And so our challenge is we need to make sure that we're keeping quality tight, which, which we are, you know, always putting in process to make sure that we do that. But as you grow to that scale, it becomes, it becomes more and more important to manage each shipment. And, uh, but that's the kind of, that's the kind of volume volume that we're moving. Now, did you notice that I kind of went in the back door to dig that number out of you? <laughs> <laughs> I knew where you were going, but you know, I'm comfortable sharing that larger number, uh, less comfortable getting a little more granular. So, so it's all good. Oh, I amuse myself. Well, you know what? I'm so glad you gave me that number. You know, I, I was never good at math. Uh, I flunked accounting twice, but there was a lot of alcohol and substances involved when I was a kid. But that being said, I'm hearing around 50 million bucks for a guy that started this while working at another job and his dad was sending the orders out uh, from his living room. And to me, that just puts you in, I worship you for that. And that is genuine because my goodness, good for you. That is absolutely mega outstanding. And you, um, you know, no debt and you didn't raise money. So you make them in Louisville, correct? We, no, we store, we pick, pack, and ship. We inspect in Louisville. We do, uh, we design ourselves and we custom manufacture. We have various manufacturers around the world. The, the majority of ours are, are custom manufactured in China. Uh, we do have some, all of our prescription lenses are all custom made in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, and we have the processing of some of our more custom pairs that might use, you know, dips and such, uh, in the U.S. as well. But, um, 
but our facility is is where we receive in the product, store, pick, pack, and ship. Okay. And, and just before I forget, how many hours a week would you say you work? So I have probably 55 to 60. Okay. I couldn't imagine to do it in less. And then how many full-time employees do you have at this point? We have, and this again varies by seasonality, right? As we come out of our seasonality, uh, some of our summer season, it varies. But generally speaking, for a lot of this year, we've had a about a little bit under 50 full-time equivalents. Some of that, a lot of that payroll, some of that contractor, some of that temps for a warehouse, but um, about 50. In terms of your infrastructure, your management infrastructure, who is the number two person to you? Or I should ask, is there a number two person or is there a, a horizontal line of a number of people underneath you? Well, number two is, is Dan, our COO. Uh, and he is leading our manufacturer relationships and supply chain and also the team that does all of our warehousing and fulfillment of which we have a manager for those operations also. And when did you bring Dan on? Earlier last year as we looked to come online with our own facility um, is when we made that change. Did he replace somebody or was it a newly created position? Newly created position. How much of the business, if you were to decide to move to Nepal and become a monk, uh, to, to become a, a monk tomorrow and leave, how much of the business could he run? The vast majority, well, pieces of it, uh, the, the operations, yes. Um, you know, I'm leading the marketing team. Um, and so purposefully leading that, you know, as a entrepreneur in a, in a fast growth company, you know, I'm at that point where I'm coming out of a situation over the last, you know, 12, 18 months where really I was very in tune to most projects and a big part of most projects. And as we're kind of building the team, then we're, I'm also focusing very heavily on making sure that other people on the team are thought leaders and own the projects and manage them through. And of course, I have the milestones and the check-ins, but creating the full infrastructure with cross-functional leadership uh, is something that we have, but it's in its infancy. It's being developed, and so and so Dan could understands the dynamics of every of every department and the leaders of every department, and so from that, it's a good thing. But uh, it's a great thing. But but I'm definitely leading on 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 the marketing side, which which is a very different core function. Yeah, I guess I could have guessed that based on everything we've discussed. So in kind of building out this discipline um, in the teams, do you work with a mentor or a coach or consultants? How, how, do, how do you learn this stuff? I do. I have, I have a particular mentor that I do work with um, and that I'm specifically working on, on, you know, larger personnel issues, strategic conversations, that kind of thing. You know, I also lean on contacts and relationships I have just in the business space and, and networks with other founders. Um, it's a good place to bounce things, you know, softly off of people, not getting like the hard feedback, but getting input right here and there. And so I think that that is, that's definitely an important component. And it is the mentor relationship, is it kind of a, is it a gratis or is it a structured paid mentorship? It is more the former. Got it. Right, right on. Sometimes that's the best. Well, this has been fascinating to say the least. I have one more question for you. Sure. I, I usually break that rule because then, then the answer spurs other questions. But what would, <laughs> what would you say has been the most important lesson that you've learned along the way? The most important lesson is that to find, to have success as an entrepreneur and startup, you have to persist and grind and have grit to move through the hard times when things are not working. And you hear that a lot, but to like really make that real, you're making a lot of sacrifice and you're doing the work. But a lot of times you're doing it and you're not seeing any benefit at all. And it's, you're not even sure if you're going the right direction. You're not even sure if the sacrifice makes sense. And so the importance of getting through that is so crucial because it's what it's it's the point when many many entrepreneurs give up, um, and so the, the combination or the the add on to that is you really have to do something that you are passionate about because if you're not passionate about it, there's no way you're going to make it through the dark times. No, like this is a quote. Here's a quote. You talked to Robert Hirschbeck earlier. Robert Hirschbeck said this like. You have to have passion for what you're doing because if you don't, no sane person would do it uh, because it doesn't make logical sense. So for me, I went through a long time and a lot of times 
when it wasn't working and it didn't make sense on paper, certainly objectively didn't make sense for the sacrifice I was putting in, but I was always curious and I always loved it. And I always wanted to see what that next thing was going to do. And I think that is what, what eventually created breakthroughs and breakthroughs aren't, oh my God, now I've made it. And now I figured it out and now we're good to go. We're coasting now. Um, it's small wins that you keep leveraging and two steps forward and one step back. And it's that, that, you know, not straightforward path. But if you're curious about, about each of those wins along the way and what about this thing and what about that thing, then you can enjoy the journey. And again, you got to enjoy the journey because the end destination just flat out isn't worth it if you don't enjoy the journey. So last year I was skiing with a friend of mine and we got into an argument and the argument was over this, that he made the statement that we were talking about billionaires in this case, but it doesn't have to be billionaires, but we were. And what he said is billionaires are billionaires just because they're lucky. And uh, I took the other side of that argument and what you have just so incredibly eloquently described, um, I can relate to 100% and because it took me forever when I started my business and looking back, yeah, it was insane. I had no idea what I was doing and granted it was a while ago and it took me six years to make $100,000 and there was times when I couldn't pay my mortgage. And to me, there's very, 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 very few people that have to take your word, the grit to be able to not pack it in because it's just too hard. And there's, there's a, a internal fortitude that I believe the lion's share of people do not have. And a guy like Chris Ratterman that could build a, a $50 million and growing sunglass company is starting with nothing, right? With 20 grand. To say you're one out of a thousand, I don't think is right. You, you might be one out of 10,000. And you're a hero, man. And you'll continue to do phenomenally well. And I appreciate your time. Well, I very much appreciate that. And I enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for having me on. You got it, Chris. And I will circle back and we'll do it again. All right. That sounds like a plan. See you later. Street Smart Success.